The sermon this evening will come from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. So in this chapter, Moses is, is uh, receiving another copy of the two tablets that he had received initially from God on Mount Sinai, but he smashed them, remember, when he came down the mountain and discovered the idolatry of the golden calf. And now God gave him two new stones. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're on page 195 in the Bible. And we read, At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut out for yourself two tablets of stone, like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain, and make an ark of wood for yourself. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, and cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones, and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. He wrote on the tablets, like the former writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain, from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. Now the sons of Israel set out from Berot ben Ejakan to Moserah. There Aaron died. And there he was buried and Eleazar his son ministered as priest in his place. From there they set out to Gadgoda and from Gadgoda to Jatbatha, a land of brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve Him, and to bless in His name until this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. I, moreover, stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights, like the first time. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the highest heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So, circumcise your heart, and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality, nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So far the reading 
of, our, of the scripture this evening. Congregation, we continue tonight to, to move our way along on the path of life. Remember, so I have described the Heidelberg Catechism as it moves us through uh, the different uh, aspects of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be saved from our sin. And we come this evening to an objection. If you can think of this as a courtroom, you might think of, of one of the attorneys raising their hand and objecting. Those of you who are parents have heard this many times from your children. Objection. And especially it has to do with this word responsibility. Responsibility. Because we know that a person that is responsible, that is held responsible to do something, is given an order. And he is then held responsible for performing that directive. And if he fails, he is guilty. And if he performs it, he is obedient. And he's done what has been asked of him. But you can hear just in that word, can't you? Response, able. Do you hear that? Response, able. In other words, when you give a person an order or a directive of some kind, it's assumed that he's going to be able or she is going to be able to do the thing. That they have the ability to do it. And that it's unjust to expect somebody to do something that they're not able to do. This brings us to our catechism. Because our catechism question and answer this evening, it's uh, question and answer nine. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't put it on the outline. I'll try to remember to do that next time. But it is this. Doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? So there's the question. Doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? Right? And again, you can think of that word response, able. In other words, you're able to respond. And if you're not able to respond, then how can you be held responsible? That's the objection that is raised here now, you might say, in the courtroom. Doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? And the answer given is this. No. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. And by gifts there, our catechism means the gift of that ability. That gift of a heart that was willing and able to keep the commandments of God. But you'll remember, if you can think back a few messages that we had talked about total depravity. We had talked about man's complete inability to save himself and to rescue himself from the predicament that he's in and his complete inability to keep the commandments of God. Every choice that an unregenerate man makes is stained with sin. And remember we talked about uh, a, a, a work, a good work is not just an action that is good, but it also has to proceed from a heart that is good. It has to be motivated by a desire for God's glory. Well, man, unregenerate man, fails on all those accounts. So now the objection is raised. How can God hold man responsible to do 
what he's not able to do, what he lacks the ability to do. Now, when we hear that, it sounds very cogent, doesn't it? It sounds like this is going to be a tough one to answer. The catechism responds with one answer. I want to give you another one also. I'm going to give you two answers. Let me first explain the answer the catechism gives. The catechism states that man once had the ability to keep God's commandments, but by his own choice, he lost it. So you might say that man's inability is culpable, to use a legal term. He's blamed for it, right? When a drunk person kills somebody, he wasn't able to drive safely, but that doesn't get him off the hook, does it? He's still going to be held responsible, even though at the time he wasn't able to drive safely, but it was his own choice that got him into that predicament. I remember my mother used to explain this to me. My mother was was a good theologian, and she said to me one time, she said, You know, Chris, if you gave somebody a package to deliver to an island and there was a bridge to that island and you take that package and you're going to deliver it to the island but you burn down the bridge first, your mother can still hold you responsible for delivering that package because you were able to cross to that island and deliver the package. I have no idea where my mother got this analogy but it stuck with me for so many years. And it's, it's exactly what the catechism is saying, isn't it? That you had the ability to deliver the package, but it was your own choice that destroyed the bridge that would enable you to do it. So your inability then is blameworthy. You're to be blamed for it. So that's the first answer that the catechism gives us. Now other theologians have come up with a, another answer to this in keeping with the first answer, not contradictory to it, but that adds to it. And they made a distinction. Especially, I can think of a theologian such as Jonathan Edwards uh, and Arthur Pink. Maybe these are names you're familiar with. Again, if you like to read these uh, things, I can, I'm happy to share them with you. But these men, and others like them, said that when we look at the inability, when we talk about a man's inability to keep the commandments of God, we need to say something more about that. Something more about man's inability now let me, let me give you this illustration. Uh, young men, I especially, I think this will, you'll understand this, but you know those salt bags that you, you pour the salt into your water softener at home, right? They're quite heavy. And I suspect your dad or your mom probably makes you haul them inside, right? Because they're, they're heavy. They weigh 40, 50, 60 pounds, those bags, right? At least my dad always did. I always had to haul them downstairs, and they're dreadfully heavy for me. Now, if my dad gave me that order and said... Chris, carry those bags of salt down to the, to the basement and put them next to the water softener. And I wasn't able to lift 40 pounds, right? If I wasn't physically able to lift the 40 pounds, or whatever, however heavy the bag was, then that would have been, that would not, that would have been an injustice, right? That would have been a, a very poor directive and order for my father to give me if I'm not even able to do it, right? Probably most of the... Children here would cry, no fair, right? You'd say, that's not fair. I I can't lift them, right? And you'd be indignant and kind of angry that your dad would give you such an order. But now let's suppose a different case. Suppose that your dad says, carry those salt bags down into the basement for me. And you say, "Uh, well, uh, I can't. I I won't do it. And he says, you're not able to do it. What do you mean? And you say, well, I don't want to. 
In other words, you are able to lift those bags. You just don't want to do it. Maybe you're busy with something else and you say, Dad, I, I can't be bothered right now. I'm, I'm doing this. I don't want to take those salt bags down into the basement. See, now it's a different kind of inability, isn't it? Now the inability isn't that you lack the physical capacity to lift the bags and to take them down into the basement. You just have an unwillingness to do it. You see the difference in the kind of inability that we're talking here? And when we talk about the kind of inability of a natural man to keep the commandments of God, we're not talking about an inability that he lacks a mind, that he lacks a will by which he can make choices, that he lacks a heart to motivate him to do the work. He has all those faculties, you might say. He has all the equipment, you might say, to make choices that honor God. But he does not want to. He has an unwillingness, even a hostility, to keep the commandments of God. Again, some of these theologians would use terms, and some people object to these terms because they're, they're easily misunderstood, but let me just give them to you anyway. And they would say that, that sinners do not have a natural uh, inability, right, in the sense that they, they lack the natural powers needed to make choices to serve God. They lack a moral ability. In other words, they do not have a heart that is willing to lead them to keep the commandments of God. And you can see this, uh, this, this distinction in different scriptures. Let me, let me read some of these to you. Um, now, this distinction itself is not taught explicitly in the scripture, but you can see how this understanding underlies some of these texts. For instance, when we read in 1 Kings 14, verse 4, now Ahijah, he was the king, could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. Now, Ahijah was unable to see. That was what we would call a, a natural inability, right? He lacked the capacity. His eyes were blind. He couldn't see. How about Genesis 37, verse 4, where we read that the brothers of Joseph were not able to speak to him? Ah, now you hear something different, don't you? They had mouths. They had a tongue. They could speak. But they were not able to speak to him because they hated him so much. Their inability wasn't a lack of any kind of ability to speak, but it was that lack of love for their brother which would bring them to speak to their brother. They hated him so badly. Jonah 1 verse 13, 13 we read about the men on the boat with Jonah that they were not able to return to land because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. That's clearly a, a physical incapacity, right? They, they lacked the strength to bring that boat to land. But some time ago, we had a text, we had a sermon on Romans 8, and verse 8, and there also we read, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot please God. Now, is that because they don't have a mind? They don't have a will? They don't have the ability to make choices that are honoring to God? Not at all. In fact, in the previous verse, we read the reason. We read the reason why they are unable to please God because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. There's the problem. You see now what a difference this is, congregation, when you talk about the inability of man. If man had a, a natural inability, right, like that he, he lacked the, choice, the ability to make choices, then it, it would be an injustice to expect him to obey the commandments of God. But you see how much more the guilt of man is, is it's, it's made all the worse 
Because his unwillingness is not a lack of, of again, the, the faculties, the mental faculties to make these choices, but it's a direction that those faculties, that they are hostile to God. And because they are bent in that direction, man is unable to please God. He's unable to, to take his heart and to bring it around to, 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 to align with God's commandments. Now before I leave this, I want to bring you back again to another message that we had. You know what's interesting, isn't it? How all the truths of God interconnect. Remember we talked about the image of God. And remember at the time that I taught you that man has lost the moral image of God, but not the natural image of God. And remember that the natural image of God was the possession of those faculties, right? His reason, his ability to think and to make choices, his ability to remember and his ability to speak. Man has those faculties yet. He hasn't lost those. But the problem is that they are bent in this direction, aren't they? Of wickedness. They are, they are motivated, you might say, by a heart that is addicted to idolatry and to sin. And therein lies the problem, congregation. And that's why God can still hold man responsible for his sin. Because man's inability to keep the commandments of God is his guilt. He's guilty for it. Yes, because at one time he had it and he lost it. But even now, we still have the ability, we still have those faculties to choose and to think and to reason and to act in accordance with the law of God. But our heart is set on wickedness. Again, it's very much like if your father gave you an order and you said, well, I can't do that. And your, said, your dad says, well, why can't you do it? Well, I don't want to. I don't think your dad would look at you with pity at that moment, right? He would probably punish you for that. Well, congregation, this is the reason that God does not do man any injustice by requiring him to perform the law of God. He had the ability, and he lost it. And in the second place, even the ability that he has, the inability that he has now, is not a lack of the faculties to make that choice, but it's a hostility, an enmity against God, and it makes his guilt all the worse. Now, what can we say, though, in terms of the Bible? Does the Bible teach us these things? And again, we want to bring the, the catechism and its teaching to us to the scriptures. And as I thought about this and tried to think what scripture would teach this, and there's many, but there's a picture that we have in the Bible that teaches it very clearly. And that is this, this picture of circumcision. Circumcision. Now you know uh, from the scripture that the, the Bible uh, commanded in Genesis 17, and maybe it's good that we turn there and, and look at that together, Genesis 17, where God gives Abraham for the first time this command to circumcise his children. You see that in verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So the circumcision was a sign of being in covenant with God. And in verse 14, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now later, we read that Paul will teach in Colossians 2, verse 11, that the circumcision of Christ 
is a cutting off of our sinful nature. But now already in the Old Testament, circumcision began to be a symbol of being of, of, of a willingness and of a brokenness to follow God and to do His commandments. And that is what we understand then to be the circumcision of the heart. And there's some very uh, important texts to consider in this line. Because there are those Christians who teach that circumcision was just a badge of being an Israelite. It was just sort of a, a, a sign of being uh, a, a, a member of the Israelite nation. But that is clearly incorrect, congregation. And I read to you Jeremiah 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. Now, congregation, when it says, Behold, their ears are closed, that is, behold, their ears are uncircumcised. In other words, there is a stubborn unwillingness to hear the commands of God. Their ears are uncircumcised. And furthermore, in Ezekiel 44, verse 7, I'm sorry, in Jeremiah, stay in Jeremiah 9, in Jeremiah 9 and verse 26. In Jeremiah 9 and verse 26, God is talking about Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clipped the hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised. Right? They're, they're physically uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. The Israelites were physically circumcised, but they had an uncircumcised heart. Now what is meant by that? We've heard about ears that are unwilling to hear. We, hear, we read now of a heart that is uncircumcised. Well, clearly, congregation, this physical sign of circumcision is now meant to stand for a spiritual reality. And what is that reality? Well, that brings us to our text. And this is what we read in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. We read this together. Where God commands the Israelites, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. An uncircumcised heart, congregation, is a heart that is stiff and hard and unwilling to bend. The opposite of an uncircumcised heart or a stiff-necked person is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. There's the difference. A heart that is broken before God and is, is willing and even earnestly desiring to follow Him and to walk in His commandments and an uncircumcised heart, which is like a stiff neck, refuses to bow before God, refuses to follow Him. Now notice, congregation, that the Scriptures doesn't, it doesn't say we don't have a heart. Right? We have a heart. We have a mind. We have a reason by which we make choices. But it's uncircumcised. If we are unbelievers, we have an uncircumcised heart. And that means a stiff heart, a stiff neck, just like the uncircumcised ears that are unwilling to listen to God. In Philippians 3, verse 3, Paul says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so on the one hand, congregation, we have the catechism teaching us that man has lost his ability to follow God and that is a guilty 
He's guilty for that loss of that ability. It's his own fault. And in the scripture we have this clear teaching that natural man has an uncircumcised heart. It is a heart that will not bow before God, but stubbornly stands on its own pride and in its own sin and refuses to follow God. And that the saving act of God is to circumcise that heart, to cut off that old sin nature, and to make that a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You remember Stephen's speech that he gave to the Sanhedrin? He says, you uncircumcised in heart. He said that to the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jewish religion. You uncircumcised in heart, he says. And again, referring to that stubborn unwillingness to bow before the truth of God. So that's what an uncircumcised heart is. And a circumcised heart is a broken and a contrite spirit. Now I also wanted to look at Ezekiel 44 and verse 7, where you see again that this whole idea of circumcision of heart is not something that we find just in the New Testament. This is an Old Testament concept. In fact, congregation, to be explicit, the, the idea of circumcision as a physical sign of a spiritual reality is the exact equivalent of baptism for us. A physical sign of a spiritual reality. But in Ezekiel 44 and verse 7, we read of God rebuking uh, the Israelites who brought in foreigners who were uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh. In other words, they lacked the spiritual reality and they lacked the physical sign. They came in my sanctuary and they profaned it. So, uncircumcised hearts. A, a picture of that spiritual reality of, their, of a stubborn and unwilling heart. Congregation, let's move then to these points of application. And our case in the first place. And congregation, again, this, this helps us to understand our true case, our situation before God. In the, in the sight of God, what are we? Are we, are we victims to be, to be sympathized with? That's what it would be if we were unable uh, and that we had not even the faculties to make these choices. Or is it the case that we are criminals who've lost the ability to serve God by our own choice? And that's why I put that quote in there from Horatius Bonar. Remember that what you call your inability, God calls your guilt. That's a very penetrating quote, congregation. That is a severe quote, isn't it? That when we stand here today and when we think of our condition by nature, right, and we, and we immediately tend to pity ourselves as victims, and yet when we understand our true case before God, our situation before Him is not one of victim. It wasn't our misfortune that we lost our ability to serve God. It's our guilt. We're guilty for it. And even our inability now, as we, as we considered already, even our inability now is still a guilty inability.
You often think about hell, right? We think about the terrors of hell. What an awful thing it is. And, and we can think too about God sending people to hell. Would, would he really do that? Well, congregation, again, when you see the situation of man, that man is not the, the victim of, say, let's, uh, Adam made a poor choice in the past, and now we suffer for it. But it's our own guilt. And the inability that we lack is our own guilt, even now, for us in this time and place. And that when God sends people into hell, He's not sending poor victims into hell. He's sending willful unbelief, people who refuse to bow their heads, to bend their stiff necks. They refuse, they have uncircumcised hearts. It's, it's as, again, it's as if Stephen were standing here this evening and pointing to natural man and saying, you stiff-necked people, you are uncircumcised in heart, just like all your fathers were. And your inability is your guilt. Well, our response to that congregation in the second place, our response. You know, there's another verse in Deuteronomy. There's another verse in Deuteronomy. How many of us, when we read Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16, didn't despair? Think of this command that God gives us, circumcise your heart, stiffen your neck no longer. But who can do that this evening? Congregation, who will stand up in the service and say, I will circumcise my own heart. I will change my heart. God had said previously, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And who here tonight will say, I will will make that change. Give me some time, a few days, and I'll, I'll make that change so that I can really follow God with my whole heart. Congregation, if you know anything in the life of faith and the walk with God, you know that that is an impossibility. And God brings all His people to that place in their life, where they acknowledge that their heart is not something that they can change. But praise be to God, congregation, there's another verse in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, it says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. There's the gospel this evening, congregation. Because we could sit down in despair when God says, circumcise your heart, follow me, love me with your whole heart and with all your soul. And we say, Lord, I can't. I can't. In fact, even as, even as those who have, have received the grace of God, we, we sometimes sit down in despair because it seems so impossible to make our heart, to move our heart, to follow God. But now God comes. Right? And that's where this catechism has to drive us. That's why I called it a response. How do we respond to this truth that God says circumcise your heart and we say, Lord, I can't. I, I can't move my heart. And God says, I will circumcise your heart. Congregation, that's the promise of the new covenant. That's the promise of what God promises His people. And the history of the Old Testament, the history of Israel there is just the repeated proof of this reality that no person, no man, no woman can change his heart. Israel is constantly sliding back into idolatry 
and into sin. But the promise of the new covenant is that God will come. He will circumcise our hearts. He will make us to love Him and to walk in His ways with our whole heart and with our whole soul. Isn't that good news this evening, congregation? So that when we, when we read this reality that we've lost our ability to serve God, we don't sit down and do nothing. There are Christians that take that approach, right? Well, then if I can't do anything about my salvation, if I can't keep the commandments of God, if I can't bring my heart to love Him, I guess I'll sit down and just wait for Him to work. Is that your attitude? Is that your approach? That's the devil telling you that, that's for sure. But may this truth, congregation, may it drive us into the arms of Christ. May it drive us into the arms of this promise. I will circumcise your heart. That's that's where God intends this to lead us tonight. And actually, congregation, hasn't that been the response all along as we've gone through these dark, dark passages of the catechism where it's been proving our depravity, showing us our sin, showing us our guilt. And our response should always be the same, that it should drive us into the arms of the promise. It should drive us into the arms of Jesus. I will make you a new heart. I will circumcise your heart. What a blessed truth, congregation, to put Deuteronomy 10, 16. To hear that coming from God and to answer it with Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Now, congregation, is that an experiential reality in your life of faith? That when God says, circumcise your heart, you respond, Lord, circumcise my heart. God says, love me. We respond and say, Lord, make me to love. Draw love out of my heart to you. Remember the old saying of Augustine, Lord, give what you command and then command what you will. In other words, Whatever God commands us to do, He gives us the ability to do it. And congregation, that should be your life of prayer. And actually, that brings me immediately to my third point, right? This life of faith. That even as Christians, we talked about natural man today, right? How he lacks the ability to serve God. But even as Christians, congregation, even as those who've been made new by the Spirit of God, don't you feel that in your life? How sluggish we sometimes come to worship. How cold our hearts can be in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in our life of faith with God. How slow we are to act. Our heart. Do you love God with all your heart? With all your soul? Or do you feel every day how far short you fall? What should that do for us, congregation? Not to sit down in despair, not to abandon Christianity altogether but it should drive us into the heart, drive us into the arms of the promise of God. Thomas Boston was a Scottish theologian. And look at that beautiful thing, that beautiful quote he gives us there. He's talking there about that verse in in Galatians 3, where it says we must live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And look what he says. I take this, in other words, I take this verse, to be the soul's constant traveling betwixt the fullness in Christ and the emptiness, the nothingness, the misery and poverty that is in myself. Congregation, do I speak to a people who understand that language? I know it came to you in English, but is that the language of your soul tonight? That in myself I have misery and nothingness, emptiness, and every day again, I travel to Christ and His fullness. 
just as we heard in our, in, our, in our text, circumcise your heart. And we take that back to God and say, Lord, circumcise my heart for me. Congregation, that's the life of faith. That traveling. That daily life of faith. That traveling betwixt the emptiness that is in ourselves and the fullness that is in Christ. What a happy life that is. A self-denying life. It's a pilgrim life. It's a life that doesn't find fullness in the things of this world. It's a life that finds this world empty and vain. But it's a life of traveling. Congregation, again, I press that on you. What do you know in your own life of faith of that traveling? If you know your emptiness, if you know your inability to keep God's commandments, even as a Christian, and I know God does give us the ability as Christians, He does give us a new heart, but we always fall short, isn't it? We always fall short of it. But what a precious truth that we can answer Deuteronomy 10, verse 16 with Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Lord, give what you command and then command what you will. Then the Lord can command us to do anything He wants. Because if He gives us the ability to do it, then we can do anything that He commands us and directs us to do. Then nothing is too much. Well, congregation, may this sermon drive us into the arms of the promise. I think also of what David said in Psalm 51. Create for me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. May God bless this and these words to us for his name's sake. Let us pray. Almighty God, we travel this evening to your fullness, to the fullness that is in Christ. We find in ourselves, O Lord, a mind, a tongue, a will, a memory, a mouth. We have feet, we have hands. But Lord, we have a heart that is driven by hostility to you. And Lord, where we have believed in Jesus Christ, we have rejoiced that that heart has been made new. That we have received a new heart and a new spirit from you. But tonight, Lord, we lay also our heart before you as still so deficient, as still falling so far short, Lord, of where we want to be. And so we pray, O oh God, circumcise our heart. Every day again, Lord, come and give us a new heart. Revive our heart. Breathe new life into us. O oh, Holy Spirit, fall down upon us in power. Anoint us. And give us all what we need to live a life that honors and glorifies your holy name. Lord, I pray that these truths would be bound upon our hearts. And that in our life of faith, Lord, we would not sit down in despair. But that we would sit down in hope of the glory of God. And that we would travel every day to the fullness that is in Christ. As an answer to our own emptiness. To our own nothingness. Lord, please hear our prayer. Bless us and remember us in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.